0: I think the beauty of what you look at in today's day and age, which I speak about on the diversity, equity and inclusion, is that you're starting to see a lot more female leaders. You're starting to see more female lead in positions in film companies, in exhibition, in the art form itself. You're starting to see diversity really take a bigger step with the African American community, which I think is absolutely fantastic. In lead roles in movies that are very meaningful to the community. And it's my hope to see that also happen within the Hispanic and Latino community.
1: Hello and welcome to the Box Office Podcast. I'm Rebecca Polly, Deputy Editor at Box Office Pro, the pulse of theatrical exhibition. Joined here today by Russ Fisher of Box Office Studios and Box Office Pro Chief Analyst Sean Robbins. Uh, A little bit later on in the episode, we'll be hearing from Editorial Director Daniel Luria, who uh, is now at show East, so he'll be catching us up on all the goings on there. But before we get to that, Russ, we've had some release date shakeups from the MCU.
2: Yeah, certainly the big news is that Marvel pushed Blade back by a year. Basically, the director had recently bailed. Uh, they were, you know, searching for a new director, but that also. Probably means that there would be some script rewrites, and, well, understanding that all the action set pieces are probably going to remain mostly the same, because those have already been in previs and in development for probably some time now, and it's too late to change some of that stuff. So they they pushed Blade back a year, uh, which is good, because it was supposed to start shooting like now, and they didn't have a director. So uh, better to do that. but. Um, you know, the interconnectivity of Marvel means that that shuffles the whole Marvel release calendar back by six months to a year. But I think the biggest thing is that unless something changes, Marvel no longer has a movie for this window next year. They no longer have a November because that was Blade. Um, And they don't have a movie to put in that window. So either they pushed The other two movies that they do have next year, which begins with Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania in February, either they push those to get that November or they keep those where they are.
1: That that used to be what it was, that it was two a year. And (laughs) I think
2: that they, I think they mostly wanted to do two a year, but then there were going to be occasionally be three movie years. But now, of course, with two years of kind of super weird schedules, thanks to COVID, it seemed like they were kind of like, no, let's. Let's get the stuff done. Nobody's getting any younger here. Yes. Yeah. So, when you're talking <laughs> about what you're doing into 2025, I'm sure some of these actors are like, TikTok, let's, uh, you I know, I'm going to, to say right. yes, but
3: <laughs> I got other stuff to do. Yeah, Secret Wars is now in 2026.
2: Oh my gosh. So.
1: Yeah. To, to, to recap what we have here, it's, yeah, Blade is now September 2024. Uh, Fantastic Four, which was November 2024, is now February 25. Secret Wars, as you mentioned, Uh, Sean is kicking off the summer movie season in 2026. And then some, you know. The domino effect continues for two uh, two untitled MCU films. Uh, we also have a date for the third of Kenneth Branagh's Hercule Perot movies, A Haunting in Venice, uh, and an updated title for the, well, I guess the, the, I don't know if it's a reboot, if it's another, it's another King, it's a Planet of the Apes movie <laughs> uh, called Kingdom, the Planet of the Apes. Is it a- I
2: think it's a sequel. Yeah, it's not a reboot. It's a sequel. Uh, I think it takes place as the- the title suggests I think it takes place sometime after the conclusion of the last movie, uh, but it is a sequel.
1: Skipping over to Warner Brothers, Russ, Dune has been moved forward two weeks, so congratulations. Uh, you'll get to see Dune yeah. two weeks earlier.
2: <laughs> yeah, excited. Yeah, and and that's that's also the Blade effect, that Dune basically took Blade's date. The That shuffle helps me personally, which... Uh, is something I'm thankful for.
1: So when I uh, when I when I logged on here, you uh, you were both talking about Halloween Ends, which had debuted lower than uh, than the first two films in the trilogy. I don't know. I, I know Russ. I know you loved it, Sean. I, I feel like considering the film did come out uh, day and date, theatrical and on on Peacock, I don't feel like that opening weekend of forty one point two million is all that. Bad, really. Even if it is lower than the other two, what were your thoughts on its performance and how you think it's going to hold up next week?
3: Yeah, I think. Well, those those are two very different questions. Uh, we'll start with the first part. Yeah, I don't think it was that surprising. It, it was certainly it was on the the low end, and I kind of this is where I look at contrasting the long range versus the week of forecasts and long range. We pretty much had this centered, like high 30s to low 40s. And then Universal came out last week and said that they think it can do 50 or higher. Typically studios lowball. It's very rare that they miss by a, a very high amount. And this was one of those cases. And that really, I think, has informed the narrative around assessing this weekend. But by and large, you know, yes, it's easy to look at the day and date aspect. I think that was always going to have an impact, but so was reception for Halloween Kills. I mean, honestly, that was going to be a factor whether or not this film went day and date on streaming. So, you know, this isn't a bad release. It's going to be profitable. It didn't benefit from that finale factor as much. And I think, you know, the word of mouth at this point, we can kind of compare it to Halloween Kills. It's very divisive. You either love it or you hate it, which is really atypical for most Halloween movies. (laughs) But I would really look to last year when Kills dropped about 71% in its second weekend, and we can probably expect something like that here. It's a different... Dynamic than last year when there really wasn't another major horror film out. Mm-hmm. Dune opened and kills second weekend. Black Adam will be in the second weekend. So some things are apples to apples. It's going to lose all those premium screens. So that's that's really going to hurt it because it was really strong in Dol- Dolby and IMAX.
1: Sean, looking at, I mean, this is a question I have for you on on Black Adam is is what made me. This is what I want to pick your brain on as far as predicting how it's going to do opening weekend this upcoming weekend. In terms of comps, like. Do you look at this as a DCU movie, or do you look at it as a Dwayne Johnson movie? I mean, what do you think is more valuable in terms of assessing?
3: That's yeah, that's a fair question. I, I, it's half and half. I think the, I think I lean a little bit more toward a Dwayne Johnson movie because this is that's the selling point. This is Dwayne Johnson as a as an antihero, and that's the hook. Because to be honest, who knows about Black Adam outside of you know fans? Uh, granted that's not always a a, a killer because we've seen movies like Shazam do really well without that a big, big star name attached even though Zachary Levi was certainly popular in in fan circles, but Johnson is an entirely other level, so I I lean more toward this as people want to go see him in this kind of a movie and you know, it's, 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 it's interesting that he has never opened a movie solo to more than 60 million even though he's been in the Fast and Furious movies, he wasn't "Quote unquote," the lead. I look at the fact that he's done so well in a number of genres before Johnson. That is, and this is this is kind of his next progression from the Hobbs and Shaw big action movie, and that's that's really I think where it's probably tracking to go. I think it'll be very general, general audience friendly, regardless of how critics end up reacting to it. We'll see where it goes, but I, I like right now. I'm liking the over. 60 million range maybe it can get up close to 70 if all goes well
1: but if this is not the highest grossing dwayne johnson solo opener of his career then that would be a surprise or a little
3: bit yeah yeah Hobbs and shaw is the marker i believe at 60 and the jumanji films were much lower, but hard to compare because they opened over the holidays with, with funky release date timings. But yeah, I would, I think that's really kind of the, the benchmark.
1: Russ, have you heard anything uh, regarding the quality of the film?
2: I haven't heard much. That's very good, but at the same time, the people that I've talked to are the people who are probably the least likely to enjoy a movie like this. I don't know that it's indicative of how general audiences will respond.
3: Almost as if there might be a a venom kind of aspect to it, which critics really didn't care for, but it played well with with audiences. Yeah,
2: absolutely. This is an old Warner regime movie. Uh, So I'm curious to see internally in Warner Brothers what it does when this movie opens. Uh, I'm, you know, there's a lot going on over there right now, clearly. And (laughs) so. you know it, it's they're trying to chart the future of DC comics movies uh, which has been shaky for a while and they they need to solidify it and I'm curious to see how this movie impacts whatever plans they're making I think Aquaman 2 has a lot of potential but that movie is now a year away right that's that was mm-hmm. that's was yeah. pushed to holiday to Q4 of 23 so that's a long time to wait.
1: I mean, uh, Sean, and for those who uh, don't want to see uh, anti-hero Joanne Johnson punching people in the face this weekend, we do have Universal's Ticket to Paradise, uh, Julia Roberts and George Clooney. Um, they screened it at the Geneva Convention. You know, it's it's been screening on the cinema convention circuit. It, it's a lovely little film, I think. Uh, but, I mean, in terms of previous big screen rom-coms, both for like the power set of, of Clooney and or Roberts and the stuff that we've seen this year. What do you like on the bros to lost city spectrum?
3: <laughs> yeah, that's a large, that's a very, a very wide, wide spectrum. spectrum.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I,
3: I, I honestly, at this point, it's, it's tricky to say, I'm kind of looking at the international performance, which has been really good. It's, it's close to $73 million already outside of North America. And for a rom-com I think especially starring two actors that are appealing to a certain age, certainly over 35, I think that's that's a good result. And usually that could be indicative of what's going to happen domestically. The The change here is that that movie didn't have to open against Black Adam in other markets. So what I'm kind of expecting is a more tempered opening. I think it's a good counter-programming option because not everybody is going to be interested in a DC movie. So this is a good option for... You know, adult date night crowds, I would say. But, you know, we also look at what happened to Bros, what happened to Amsterdam a few weeks ago, and even though this is not a period movie, it, it is still – it could be a tough sell in some ways, but I think I think the Roberts and Clooney aspect is important here because we're seeing more and more a return to an appeal of star power, and Lost City is a great example of that. Uh, Dog, although not a rom-com, was an example of that with, with Channing. So – you know, if this had Channing in it, I guess I would be more confident in saying it's going to break out <laughs> this is the short way to say like all that. But yeah, I kind of expect a leggy run, and but the opening weekend range is just, it's a little all over the place right now because I would not be shocked if, you know, maybe it's low double digits, even high single digits. I would also maybe say it is a good counter-programming option. Maybe it could sneak past that that $15 million mark. I think we'll get a, a little bit better idea here in the next few days after, after recording this, but... Either way, I see it having a lot of staying power and probably sticking around until Thanksgiving, if not later. So all will not be lost in case it doesn't open well. But uh, this is certainly a movie that's not a make or break for opening weekend.
1: Rush and Sean, thank you uh, so much for joining us. It's always nice when to get all four of us together on the same episode, even if Daniel's kind of like piping in from Florida. It's still good the whole, yeah, the whole team nice. together. <laughs> and we are welcoming halfway through the podcast here, Daniel, joining us from Miami at Show East. Daniel, how you doing?
4: Good. It's nice to be back in Miami. Uh, some of you might know I, I went to high school down here, so a lot of fond memories. You know how Miami is, Rebecca. Everything is either wonderful or awful. There's nothing in between in this wonderful city of extremes.
1: So uh, wonderful or awful for the outlook for the, <laughs> for the cinema industry, then, <laughs> if there's uh, if there's There's no gray zone. I'm suspecting, though, that there is an actual gray zone. What's the main takeaway before we drill down into it a little more detail?
4: The macro overview, I think, is measured, Rebecca. Uh, You know, we we have to approach this recovery uh, from that position. I know we all want to compare uh, where we're at now to where we were in 2019 as an industry. And the reality is that we're just not going to get there. Uh, From the presentations, it looks like we're going to finish the year from a global box office perspective, 30% behind where we were in worldwide box office in 2019. But if you compare that to other industries, it's the same percent drop that you see in the airline industry when it comes to worldwide passenger revenue no one is going out saying that airplanes aren't going to exist anymore. If you look at the hotel and resort business worldwide, they're going to be down 30 to 44% this year compared to pre-pandemic levels. No one's going around saying that hotels won't exist in two years. That's just not where we are. Uh, It's a situation that I think any leisure and out-of-home entertainment uh, sector is going to be facing, especially as we're looking into what might very well be a recession going into next year. So 30% down, not ideal, but I don't think it's a doomsday scenario at all. If we look at the domestic forecasting for the coming years, uh, I think the folks here, some of the figures that I've been hearing, they're actually quite positive. So we came into this year, Rebecca, expecting for the domestic box office to be graded on a curve of 10 billion. 10 billion being an an A+, uh, 8 billion being a B, 7, C. We're probably gonna finish between seven and eight. Uh, Here on the domestic level for 2023, I think we're back in that $10 billion expectation 2024, I think we can expect going back to 11 billion. And I think right now as an industry, we're looking at 2025 being the first year with a legitimate shot to break the domestic box office record. So it's in the horizon. We just need to execute.
1: To say, oh, we're going to get a record by 2025. It sounds great. It also sounds very far away. So what do we (laughs) need to do? What needs to happen in order for us to reach that level?
4: Well, it's part of that measured reaction here that we're hearing at Shoeys, like I've been saying. Uh, Improvement year over year until we get to that domestic box office record in 2025. And something that Alejandro Ramirez Magaña, the CEO of Cinepolis, said at a panel moderated by our colleague Michelle Cool from the box office company, he cited a couple of factors that he believes will take us to that box office record once again, hopefully by 2025. Uh, Sufficient and uninterrupted theatrical releases for every demographic. That means enough
1: movies... Sufficient and uninterrupted. God, that's the dream. I love it. I love it.
4: Yeah, I I agree, Rebecca. We want to see that. We can't keep on living with this one quarter that works perfectly well and the other one that's completely barren. I'm going to hope that's... uh, Uh, hangover from the pandemic of production delays. But to give you an idea, some numbers from Comscore here, the top 100 films at the box office domestically made up 87% of the overall North America box office in 2018. This year, 2022, they're going to be making up 96%. That means this is a much more consolidated market. This is a market right now where box office is still being driven by fewer and fewer studio titles. We've been saying this for a while, that at the end of the virtual print fee era, we were expecting more movies to hit theaters. The problem is finding a way for that new content from other distributors that aren't major studios and having that connect with viewers. That's still, I think, a big challenge because the studio schedule, as you know, Rebecca, remains inconsistent. That's the number one challenge we have
1: yeah inconsistent and uh, and interrupted in terms of filling in the gaps there. Um, We obviously talk a lot about alternative content, but recently there's also been quite a substantial bit of movement in exhibitors working with streamers to bring their titles uh, to the big screen with something of a theatrical exclusivity window. But, uh, you know, obviously it's easier said than done. What are the conversations uh, happening around streamers, and specifically with the Netflix Glass Onion deal?
4: I think anyone that tells you that movie theaters are are fighting streaming tooth and nail is someone that is completely unconnected from the reality in this industry. It's a situation where things are changing. Uh, if you read the Twitter message that uh, Adam Aaron, the CEO of AMC, posted when announcing the deal that AMC struck with Netflix, he cited that he's been working on it for four years we know that they've been working on it for four years. Cinema has been working year. on it for years. <laughs> Absolutely. Cinemark last year announced their own exclusivity window with Netflix. It's not this surprise that cinemas are working with, uh, with streamers as a sort of lifeline. They've been trying to work with streamers for years and years and years. And finally, we're seeing some of that success. Well, we mentioned Netflix. We mentioned the Glass Onion deal. I think that's largely seen as a compromise. Uh, as an important first step, but nowhere near a solution here on a long-term basis. But what we are seeing around other titles with Netflix is are more signs of progress. Uh, Bardo, the upcoming film from Alejandro González Iñárritu, the Mexican filmmaker, that's coming out from Netflix. Rebecca, that is getting a seven-week theatrical exclusive run. No blackout dates like Last Onion. Seven weeks only in theaters in Mexico. That's going wide, and not like six hundred theaters wide, 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 oh, actual wow. wide. It's a fantastic, uh, you know, sign of progress as we see where streaming and theatrical is. If you look at event cinema, like you mentioned a second ago, Amazon, Disney Plus, Paramount Plus, Netflix, those are being made available to cinemas through event cinema distribution. So we're seeing more and more collaboration between the home entertainment side and the theatrical side. I think that's gonna be a big part of the equation in the coming years to get back to that record year in 2025.
1: It Sounds like another chapter in the story that we've been telling ourselves over these past two years of these things were already gonna happen. The pandemic kind of just pushed it along a little bit. Same as shifting windows, same as shifting to mobile ticketing. It's the cooperation with the streamers that, as you mentioned, uh, companies have been working on way pre-pandemic.
4: Yeah, for for, for quite a while. And I think there's still a couple of details to be sorted out. Uh, If you've been tracking what's happening with our colleagues in France, where Disney was, and let's call it what it is, I think they were threatening to pull Black Panther Wakanda from hitting theaters in France at all. An important update to that story, this week it was confirmed by Disney that they are doing a theatrical release of Black Panther Wakanda Forever in French cinemas this November. But that isn't the whole story just yet. They're still unhappy with the situation with the French windows. So we'll have to see where that ends up. Uh, You know, it's it's finding that middle ground and building from it. uh, As we've been saying, that's really going to make all the difference in this industry.
1: And of course, uh, getting the content, whether films or alternative content is only one part of the equation. You also have to convince people to come out and see them. Uh, Daniel, you, uh, you moderated a panel on that very subject of kind of film marketing and, and innovations in that. Uh, what have been the discussions around marketing and what are some of the key insights from your panelists?
4: I think the key insight is that viral marketing is no longer fully in the hands of the studios or the exhibitors. And we learned gentle that from the... Gen- <laughs> gentle there Minions.
1: Gentle Minions. There you go. <laughs> we
4: spent a long time talking about that today. The good, the bad, and the ugly coming out of the Gentle Minions craze. How do you lean into it? How do you get something that you didn't originate, that you didn't control, and use it to your advantage
1: that you didn't know about in advance,
4: including our colleagues at Universal. That's one of the big things that we spoke about. Was how did you first find out about this? And it was just text chains of people that heard about it from a friend. That's how our colleagues at Universal found out about it. <laughs> a text message on like, "Hey, do you know what's going on in TikTok around your movie?" And I think that was a great example of the entire industry being in a reactive position when it comes to social media. And there's a lot of conversations happening right now on how to be better on your toes in making sure that the next time this happens, and there will be a next time, by the way, we both know this, that you're better prepared to listen to your staff, listen to your GMs, and make sure you can turn something that might seem uncontrollable into something that can benefit your theater and the industry as a whole.
1: You put me on TikTok, I'd be completely lost. So... (laughs) But that's the thing.
4: I think a lot of executives didn't know, but a lot of the theater employees working there on a day-to-day basis, they knew well, well, well beforehand.
1: A lot of a lot of executives' kids probably knew.
4: Exactly. It's making sure those levels of communication are there so we can grow and learn from each other. A very interesting session. Another big thing that, that was brought up during uh, the panel that I moderated was the need for exhibitors to make sure they're having conversations with different audience segments. I'll I'll bring you this example, Rebecca, Halloween ends, that opened day and date, made 40 million in its opening weekend in theaters, nearly 60% of that opening weekend audience was black or Hispanic. That's a big, big chunk of people that are going to your theaters to watch something that they could watch at home. How are you communicating with them? Because it's not a one-size-fits-all solution. When you talk about social media communication, when you talk about viral marketing, you want to make sure that you have different conversations on different platforms to reach your audience where your audience is engaging the most. And we're seeing that with the social media platforms themselves. Earlier this week, TikTok announced an integration of adding showtimes and digital ticketing links to stories on its platform. So they're closing that gap between social media engagement and a ticket transaction. So you basically imagine you're going to TikTok, you see a video, you see a fun content from a creator. You can now integrate Showtime's to your local theater and link to your ticketing partner. So it's not only a nice piece of content that will raise awareness on a film or on the movie going experience. Hopefully now it can lead into a more direct ticketing journey for your consumers. That evolution is happening. We just have to make sure that exhibition and distribution are aligned to take advantage of it.
1: And ideally, uh, you know, if you see a ton of tickets coming in from TikTok integration, then you might think, oh, what's the gentle minions type thing going on here? And (laughs) go uh, give
4: it a look. What's yeah. feeding it, right? And, uh, you know, finally, uh, we talked about all of these collaborations. I think the biggest collaboration uh, that was highlighted here at ShowEast 2022 was the success of National Cinema Day. I heard this, Rebecca, from Circuits, from Independents, and from studios themselves. A fantastic, fantastic response to this initiative. And I think we're going to be seeing it again. Uh, I think there's a lot of discussion already in finding the right date and the right slate for the next time National Cinema Day hits theaters, at least here in the U.S., other countries are going out with their own version. We saw India. We saw Mexico come out with the their UK. own iteration. The U.K. of National Cinema Day. In Mexico, Rebecca, Cinepolis actually did it within its own circuit. Instead of putting it a one-day Saturday discount, they did three days, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. And according to Cinepolis, it was so successful, they're going to be doing it twice, in 2023, two times a year, getting three days in these off-peak periods, Monday through Wednesday, with these deep discounts to promote movie going. I think that's a great example of how we now have data on an initiative between distribution and exhibition that can provide results. Maybe not in terms of box office numbers, but as long as you get positive engagement from your consumers and get more attendance, more people through those doors, that's going to help you out in the long run. I'm very excited to see how initiatives like National Cinema Day evolve moving forward.
1: Ticket pricing has always been such a sensitive conversation between exhibitors and distributors. So it's interesting now to see that this is kind of... Crack the door open a little bit in some ways. Do you think it's going to have an impact moving forward, maybe outside of that one or two or three special days context?
4: That's interesting because it is something that's been talked about. I think even if we go back as far as CinemaCon 2021, you remember that panel where Chris Aronson from Paramount was basically calling on exhibition saying, hey, you're pricing people out of the movies. You have to watch out what you're gonna be doing with this premium pricing. I think that's been echoed. I think there's a realization that premium large format is a great tool for opening weekend with big blockbusters. That's not going anywhere. That's gonna continue happening. That's gonna continue growing. But not every movie that comes out every weekend, not every Showtime in any location is gonna be dominated by a tentpole. On an opening weekend. So we have to find a way to make subscription and loyalty programs and discount days more accessible to more moviegoers, especially at the face of what is likely a global recession coming into 2023. We want to make sure that movie going, yes, you do have your premium experiences, your premium tickets, but that you also have alternatives to make sure this can be accessible for anyone anywhere in the world.
1: I mean, how many people went to the family movies on national? Cinema Day, but it was three bucks a ticket and it's much more affordable to take five or six people.
4: You said it at the time yourself, Rebecca, a movie like Warner Brothers DC League of Super Pets Didn't do great business out of the gate at the box office, but on National Cinema Day, it was one of the top earners by far. It was a great opportunity for people to go in and give these titles a second chance. That's something that can happen across the board, and it's only going to get there if you make sure that dynamic pricing is dynamic not only from a premium, but also from an affordability level.
1: Now, Daniel, before uh, before we let you go back to uh, running around uh, show East, can you uh, cue us up a bit? Because for our feature segment, we do have an interview you did with uh, Rolando Rodriguez, formerly CEO of Marcus, currently still uh, still the chairman of Nino. Uh You know, can you give us? Uh, you know a, a little bit of a rundown on what we can expect from this interview that our listeners are about to hear from
4: rebecca it was a great conversation that i had with uh, rolando he's been in this industry for nearly 50 years now we go over his entire career working from being a ticket taker at an amc location deleting marcus theaters one of the largest circuits in the country that's coming up next here on the podcast so without further ado if that's okay with you Rebecca, let's go straight into that interview after this quick break Rolando, what's the best place to start? Let's start with your life as a moviegoer, because going now has been such a big part of your professional career. Can you remember your most iconic visit uh, to a movie theater? And where was it? What do you remember about those early moviegoing days in your life?
0: Look, I mean, uh, thank you, Daniel. First of all, I really appreciate you doing this. But look, I would tell you this. Uh, as you know, I was born in Cuba, in Havana, Cuba. And my early days were as a, as a kid. So when you were born in Cuba, like I was, there were a couple of things that were entertainment related, right? One was you went to the beach, you played baseball, boxing was a big thing. And I happened to participate in all of those. But frankly, the family thing that was to do in Cuba was every Sunday, my parents would take me to the movies. And so that's my early days. When you think about this, I grew up in a time period in Cuba where American films weren't even shown in Cuba because of the embargo. So I grew up watching movies from Italy, from Japan, from China, from Canada, from France. And it was just an amazing experience because I got to visit the world right and learn these stories and about these other countries through this wonderful visual art that we have and this visual art form that you can enjoy in a theater. So yes, I went to those old grand palaces in the 60s, uh, mid 60s, late 60s and watch all of these great films. And it was, it was just something that enamored me that led to actually my first, what I would call first real job, which was tearing tickets in 1975 at AMC Theatres in the Embassy 2 Theatres in the Kansas City Plaza, and I can tell you that movie, the first movie when I was tearing tickets there, just so you know, was the movie Shampoo, (laughs) 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 with Warren Beatty.
4: Can you tell me a little bit about that experience, uh, having your first job in a new country, in a new language, you're now in the US. Um, How did that come about and what were your early impressions or maybe your early lessons of working in a movie theater at that AMC that still resonate with you today?
0: Frankly, it was a, it was a life turning event that it it turned out to be a life turning event because as a kid growing up, my parents, you know, uh, tried to instill in you obviously the educational aspects and, and then you start creating your own uh, aspirations. And at the time, at the age of 15, I was thinking, gee, I'm going to go to college and I'm going to be an engineer, right? I want to be an engineer. And so here I am at 15, and the reason I chose going there is because I love movies. And so, you know, I grew up watching movies. This was a family thing. So I thought, wow, how cool. Let me let me work in a movie theater. And back in those days, as you well know, you wore a bow tie, you wore a jacket, you know, was a very formal got the dress attire to become an usher. And I remember uh, being interviewed for that job, getting that position. And by the way, it was at a whopping $1.50 an hour, (laughs) to give you an idea. (laughs) And so um, I'm sitting there, and and I say it was a life-turning event because the more I got to do the job, and, and I did, you know, as an usher, as a projectionist, as a concessionist, as a supervisor, And worked myself through the ranks into management that i really found that i really enjoyed working with people and engaging in that consumer you know connection and so i basically changed my my major really going into engineering from that to going into to a management degree and so that's why i said it was a changing uh life-changing experience because i got into really The movie theater going experience, dealing with people, loved it, loved communicating with people, loved connecting with people. And just what a fun job. It was just a very fun job.
4: And that was a specific time in the industry, of course, the mid-70s. I believe Stan Durwood is still involved in, in AMC theaters. A lot of circuits in the United States are family circuits. You don't have the situation where you have now where... You have a different generation of executives that have gone through management school, management training that maybe aren't part of a family legacy uh, taking on roles. Of course, your most recent role right now with uh, Marcus Theaters, you're coming into a family owned and operated company as a seasoned executive in the industry to run that division of the company. Uh, Could you tell me about that experience on how that has changed now that you have that experience of when you started in the industry, seeing what the industry looked like in terms of who were leading companies to today's different batch of uh, chief executives?
0: Look, it was, uh, I mean, as you stated, it was really interesting because back in the 70s, as you mentioned, I started in Stan Durwood, of course, was running AMC Theatres. And I would get to see him every weekend. You know, he'd come to the movies and I had the opportunity to chat with him because these were businesses that were owned by entrepreneurs. This entire industry was founded, if you think about it, by entrepreneurs. There was the Smiths that ran the general cinemas, you know. There was the Lowe's cinemas, right? There was the Sayufis. I mean, you, you think about all of these uh you know leroy mitchell was coming up into the industry at the time and these were major icons and really regionally oriented circuits across the entire united states and when you fast forward to today and that really started to change if you think about it in the 90s when all of a sudden you saw some of the first or second generation that were very well connected to the industry uh pretty much in and out of the industry, right? And so you saw private equity moving in and you saw some of these companies going public. And so therefore, the changing of the makeup of the industry, you saw circuits that grew into major organizations. Look, at our own AMC theaters that I spent 30 years with has grown into the largest circuit in the world. You know, you saw Regal theaters that basically was a culmination of Regal, United Artists, many other circuits that they acquired along the way. You see Cinemark, that was a combination of not just the theaters that they built, but some of the ones that they bought, like uh, the Sayufis, and by the way, even Rave Cinemas that I ran at one time. So I think that the industry has grown up, is one of the things that I would say, and some of the pluses from that is that is given the opportunity for greater level of speed to innovation. Uh, it also has taken away from some of those wonderful things that we had of the family orientation of the industry, which you've seen changed over the years.
4: Yeah, and I think it's a it's a fascinating sort of journey. Uh, hearing executives from your generation having had that experience of outsiders from the family, but insiders from the ground up. Uh, working in cinemas. We hear about this very often, executives uh, at the top ranks in circuits that began as hourly workers in local movie theaters. Uh, Going back to that um, first or first series of experiences working in the cinema business, everybody needs someone to, to help guide them along in their careers, people that can become a catalyst from going uh from let's say the hometown theater to the home office did you have uh, a mentor like that in your career
0: yeah you know i was very fortunate that i had multiple ones but one of the things i did want to add to your last question is that by the way it wasn't just in the theater business that were people that groomed up from the ground up just so you know even in the film companies These were, these were executives that actually came from exhibition in many cases that actually grew up within the theater business. So our entire industry, if you think about the historic nature of it, most of the leaders in both the film distribution and exhibition came from the ground up to your point that, you know, started as ushers or Terran tickets or at the concession stand, or they were basically a film buyer in, in a circuit. So really a fascinating evolution. But look, as far as mentors are concerned, I would tell you that one of my first ones, believe it or not, that I can recall, it was Stan Durwood himself. Because as a kid, I was tearing tickets and, you know, I was 15 years old and Stan Derwood would come in and one of the things that he used to love doing is talking to people and talking to his associates. And he'd sit there and talk to me at times for hours, you know, about the business, how did i feel about the theater you know what did i think about this movie gee are we priced you know he always talked about pricing on a regular basis and so i would say standard was was actually one of the first ones that i had i had a district manager that was extremely helpful to me his name was tom woolery that to this day i remember tremendously in helping me grow into the management ranks, and then finally having as i think about the executive ranks one of my very close friends still to this day is frank Strieski, who actually helped me tremendously you know and helped me groom into you know an executive level position Within AMC at the time so look I and I can name numerous individuals throughout the course of my career with different companies that I am very appreciative of everything that they provided me and the opportunities that they provided me to grow within organizations you know Phil Singleton gave me the first shot to be a training director in the AMC Southeast Division so look a lot of folks that I can name off I'm just very happy have been a small part of this industry for a long time.
4: And of course, a big part of that uh, responsibility, I think, that that everyone in this industry has, once they get in a position of uh, of executives, is finding a way to pass those opportunities on to the next generation. And I know that you've been very active around topics like diversifying the workforce, making sure that there are inclusive opportunities uh, for this industry. If, from your perspective over the last uh, number of years here almost 50 years as we look back if you don't mind me saying that out loud um, over the almost the last 50 <laughs> years what have been the biggest changes do you think in making sure that exhibition is a more inclusive and diverse place among the executive ranks
0: look so a couple of things one i would tell you that my career you know ranges 50 years but i would tell you that in this industry i was Uh, just almost 43 years just so you know because (laughs) I spent some years at Walmart in between I actually deviated for a while and went to work for Walmart for about five years but I would tell you this Daniel um, I think that the proudest things that I can uh, you know at least as I step away from this particular role and by the way as you know I'm still very active in in the National Association of Theater Owners as its chairman. But I would tell you that when you think about the evolution of our industry when I first started, our industry was heavily, as we talked about earlier, entrepreneurs. And these entrepreneurs were phenomenal, incredible business people that grew their this industry to actually build the foundation of this industry. However, at that point in time, the bulk of them, if not all of them at the time, for the most part, were Caucasian males. And that's how the industry started. And and I think the beauty of what you look at in today's day and age, which I speak about on the diversity, equity, and inclusion, is that you're starting to see a lot more female leaders, right? You're starting to see more female leads in, in positions of, in film companies, in exhibition, uh, in the art form itself, meaning in the movies, that they're having lead roles. You're starting to see diversity really take a bigger step with the African-American community, which I think is absolutely fantastic in lead roles, in movies that are very meaningful to the community. And it's my hope, and and as you've heard me talk many times, that I hope to see that also happen within the Hispanic and Latino community, right? Mm-hmm. That I love to see more Latinos and Hispanics in key leadership positions in this industry. I wanna see them uh, more so on the screens representing this great community that we represent, especially when you think about, Daniel, that as you and I have talked many times, Hispanic Heritage Month begins September 15th through October 15th, right? And. Here we are another year and hopefully we're continuing to make progress on seeing more and more leaders come to life on that. I hope to see Daniel, and that's one of my aspirations in the future, and it's kind of when I speak about that next chapter, is I hope to hopefully uh, get invited to participate in more business boards, right? Mm -hmm. Where I can participate in other business company boards where I can hopefully help bridge you know and talk about and encourage the importance of that diversity equity and inclusion that's necessary to truly recognize who the consumer is of today but more importantly who the consumer and the workforce of tomorrow will be and when you see that population base of hispanics representing the fastest growing population of millennials right of, of the highest birth rates in america when you see over 60 million hispanic latinos in the united states that's an important demographic by the way the youngest demographic in the united states which means that we represent a good portion of the workforce now and in the future so if we represent this kind of incredible economic dynamic when do we also connect those dots within leadership within board of directors within the screen, within the art form that we represent. And so that my passion and and my uh, eagerness to continue to see that grow, that's what I call that next chapter that I will continue to see if I can help influence that to the next level.
4: Now it's been over 40 years that you've been here involved in the exhibition industry. Which moments stick out the most for you uh, throughout your career so far?
0: you know i think that there you know i was just talking about this what were the two key turning points that i can recall that were very and there was actually three if you think about it three significant movements that happen in exhibition the first one that i can say it was kind of the multiplex complex right because mm-hmm. everybody thought oh multiplexes you know here when i first started the biggest theater that was operating at the time daniel was a the sixth screen theater That was considered a big theater, you know? And so all of a sudden these theaters grew to 12, 14, 16, 20 screens, right? And then there was the big move of stadium seating that really kind of transformed the industry back when AMC opened the Grand 24 in Dallas, Texas. And I happened to be the guy that helped open it. (laughs) So I felt very proud about that moment because it was a huge turning point in the industry. And then you fast forward to today, and one of the biggest moves that happened in the industry has been this recliner seating, which basically took what was best at home, right? And you introduced it into the theater environment, which makes it even bigger and better and hard to duplicate at home. So I think that there's been great transformations at different periods of time in the industry. But the most that I'm proud about it's seen the amazing leadership and the teams that I've had the great fortune to work with. Uh, you know, whether it was at AMC theaters, whether it was at rave cinemas and I'm very proud of the team that I've had the great fortune of representing and participating with and working along the side with at Marcus theaters for well over nine years here, uh, at the Marcus theater. So people, I would say, have been the biggest influence in my life. It's kind of how I started my passion in this business. It's kind of how I'm ending my career in this particular position within the industry. It's about people. I would tell you that I can honestly say to you that I never lost trust in the industry coming back. And, And that was actually exemplified by the fact that working with this NATO board that would work absolutely, Daniel, you need to know this and point this, they worked tirelessly. In In the course of a year and a half, we had over 50 board meetings. I want you to think about that. <laughs> we were meeting every week, and, and that told me that the people that were leading these circuits were committed to bringing back the industry. That everybody, even though we're competitors, right, and we compete against one another, There was that moment of recognizing that we needed to find a way, all of us, of bringing back this industry and the collaboration, the support, the guidance that was provided by this board. I can't tell you, it's been one of my absolute greatest honor to serve this industry as the chairman of NATO and working alongside with John Fithian, who's done an amazing job there and the rest of the NATO group were just incredible watching their hard work their dedication working with government agencies, you know supporting the small circuits that were having challenges uh coming up with obviously the safety measures that were associated to you know to work through covid to cinema day just more recently as you well know these are exciting moments and when i look at cinema day right that just occurred what an incredible success story to see over 8 million people show up to our theaters in one of the slowest weekends of the year, right? Mm-hmm. With, heart, with really no major films that came out. And it tells you the power of people working together, the excitement that our industry brings to consumers. And boy, I gotta tell you, being chairman of NATO, I am just humbled, I'm proud, and I'm honored that the industry has given me this opportunity.
1: Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of the Box Office Podcast. And thank you to everyone who you've heard over the past hour or so breaking down the comings and goings of the cinema industry. It's Daniel Aria, Rolando Rodriguez, Sean Robbins, Rush Fisher, and myself, Rebecca Polly. Uh, we hope you tune in next week. Rate and review, subscribe, whatever you need to do to keep this little scrappy podcast chugging along. The Box Office Podcast is co-produced by the Box Office Company and record edit podcast. And uh, we'll see you next week for a spooktacular episode of the box office podcast.